Okay, so today is November 15th. Welcome to our Sunday service with Sheepgate Fellowship. If it's your first time, I'd like to welcome you. If you're returning, thank you for coming back. Today, our sermon uh, text comes from John chapter 10. So this month, of course, we're focusing on the teachings of the Apostle John, primarily in the Gospel of John. I'm not going to go too much into, if at all, into 1st, 2nd, 3rd John or Revelation, but we're going to focus on primarily the Gospel of John. And then next month, we'll be concluding our annual sermon series on figures of scriptures with, of course, the figure, the greatest figure of them all, Jesus Christ, right? Um, leading right into Christmas, which is wonderful. Uh, so let's go to John chapter 10, and we're going to be reading the 21 opening verses of this chapter. So verses 1 to 21, and this is, of course, the parable of the Good Shepherd. Our church is named after this very chapter, right? Sheep Gate. And so... Uh, the Korean Yang Moon comes exactly from John chapter 10, and that's where we derive our church name. And so how appropriate it is that we finally get to learn why our church name is what it is. <laughs> so let's go to John 10 verse 1, verses 1 to 21. And if you can open your Bibles with me, and as I read, you can follow in your text. Let's read together. This is what the Word of God says. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him, because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him, because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. <clears throat> the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon-possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Amen. Uh, a beautiful text and an important one for us to understand. Uh, of course, the I am statements of John, there are seven of them. and We're only examining two of them today. Um, but of course, you're probably very familiar, if you've read the Gospel of John, with the other five. So, uh, our sermon is entitled today, One Flock, One Shepherd. And we'll be looking at John 10, 1-21 today. Our unreached people group of the day comes from Iran, the nation of Iran. Earlier in the year, if you remember, before Corona hit, uh, there was a flight 
uh, I believe it was a Ukrainian flight flying over Iran and it got shot by missiles, right? And uh, there was also the death, of course, of the famous general in Iran uh, by U.S. militants. And uh, that was, of course, uh, a big deal earlier on in the year before Corona basically overrided every bit of news. Um, but anyways, uh, there's a lot of things to pray for in the nation of Iran, but we're praying for the lurie of, of, of the southern uh, part of Iran. And there are about a million of these people, a little over a million, 1.019 million of these people, non-Christian non-evangelical, uh, mainly Muslim in their faith. And so we'd like to pray for the salvation of these million people, these, uh, this unreached people group uh, in the southern part of Iran. Lots to pray for in the world today as, the, of course, the aftermath of the election in the United States continues. Uh, of course, we want to pray for sa safety in that nation as we have been doing uh, for the past two weeks uh, post-election or the past week post-election. I know some of our members are in the states currently, and so we'd like to pray for their safety in a time uh, where there could be a lot of turmoil. Uh, we want to pray, of course, for coronavirus and uh, here in Toronto specifically, and also locally in like the province of Ontario and nationally in the nation of Canada, COVID numbers are hitting like crazy, right? Uh, we're getting thousands of cases a day uh, across the country. Here in Ontario, we have over consistently over a thousand now per day. Um, thankfully, uh, hospitalizations uh, percentage-wise are not as high as they were early on in COVID uh, when COVID hit. Uh, but we're learning a lot more about the virus, but it seems like at least, you know, this past Monday, we had the announcement, of course, of the vaccine from Pfizer that could potentially uh, be a vaccine that will be coming out soon. So we just want to pray for all these things. We want to just pray for a resolution to this because uh, I don't know about you, but I would love to celebrate Christmas together. I would love to be able, if not at least in the early part of the year, uh, be able to gather and start 2021, perhaps on a better note, uh, together as a church. And so that is my prayer uh, for a resolution alone, of course, is in God's hands and uh, in, uh, under His will. So let's pray together for a resolution to Corona and uh, for the glory of Iran. And uh, we'll begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We thank you so much for the gift of grace. We thank you so much for calling us one flock under one shepherd. The Lord, um, that we can come to know the voice of our shepherd as much as the shepherd knows us by name. Thank you so much. God, we pray for the Luria of southern Iran. We pray for the little over a million of these people uh, that have no idea of the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord Father, for this salvation news to reach them by means that only you can know and have prepared and are preparing. We pray for missionaries and churches and Christians alike to uh, funnel resources and have conviction upon their heart to preach gospel to these people, that they would come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. We pray, O oh Father, for, of course, for what's happening in the world today, uh, the coronavirus and as its and its continual aftermath in uh, not only parts of uh, Europe, but here in North America, South America, and various parts of the world today, um, as uh, countries and nations and people uh, continue to deal uh, with this pandemic. We pray, Lord God, that uh, fear would not overwhelm us, but rather uh, sanity and rationality, and Father, that our uh, hopes would be found in you that God we know that of course there are professionals working to resolve the situation and so we pray for them we pray for not just speed in recovery but the right uh, recovery method to come forth whether it be through the means of a vaccine or other things um, only you can know and so father we just entrust all these things in your hands for we know the fragility of our lives uh, is not determined by the presence of a virus or an unknown virus like the coronavirus 
but rather the fragility of our lives uh, is, is solely uh, stems from our sinful nature and our depravity. And so, Father, we thank you so much. Um, every day that we have uh, a day to live, uh, air to breathe and food to eat, and people to spend it with. We thank you, pray all the Christ. Amen. Brothers and sisters, today, again, our text is John 10, 1 to 21, and our sermon title, One Flock, One Shepherd, is derived strictly or straight from the text itself. Before we understand this parable, we must understand the context of wh in which Jesus is speaking. Who is he speaking to? Where is he speaking? What is What was done and said before? Uh, in order to know sort of the foundational elements of why this conversation has ensued. The parable of the Good Shepherd found here in John chapter 10 flows directly from Jesus' conversation with the exact same audience of this chapter in chapter 9. So he's talking to the same people in chapter 9, chapter 10. And in chapter 9, Jesus is found to have healed a man born blind. You might be familiar with this miracle. A man was born blind. Jesus, you know, puts the mud on his eyes and all that stuff, and he heals him. Now, as non-controversial as something like that may appear and sound to be, right? If I said, Jesus healed a man born blind, you might think, okay, <laughs> it's Jesus, right? He's a miracle hero. He's a son of God. He's the healer, right? But in the context of chapter 9, it causes quite a stir among the Jewish crowd mainly the leaders and the Pharisees, who are astonished that a so-called teacher of the law, a so-called man of God, a rabbi of all people, could break God's statutes, his Sabbath laws, in performing a work of healing on the Sabbath day. Sabbath day, of course, being the seventh day, right? That was kept holy, as God had commanded in Genesis 2. And, of course, we find here that um, the unfortunate reality here, of course, is that these people are misunderstanding and misinterpreting those laws, and they're applying it in a legalistic manner uh, that is not derived from the teaching of the law itself, but is, uh, is completely conditioned on their strict obedience of the law for their own purposes. Now, they're looking for reason to uh, diminish Jesus and his ministry and his credential. And so they're looking for any means, any avenue in which they can do that. And so here, they're instead of focusing on the miracle of a healing of a man born blind, which is, I mean, that sounds really cool i mean you, you would think that people of of god would celebrate a healing like this but rather they discredit jesus and they attack him for his disobedience of sabbath law well, this is of course not foreign of course we've seen this in other instances throughout not only the gospel of john but if you've read the other gospels the synoptics in matthew mark and luke this is pretty consistent throughout right it's weird, right, that they wouldn't be able to celebrate something like this. You might remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Is it lawful for this man, this priest who's walking by, to help this man in need? And it is the Samaritan alone who is able to help, right? So, in their perspective, Jesus was breaking a law and thus making him invalid. In other words, ungodly. At the end of this text that we just read today in the verses 19 to 21 some of them even claim jesus to be what this demon like a demon and he's insane that he's demon possessed right this is completely distracting them this this idea of trying or this um this threat of jesus at least their perceived threat of jesus and their desire to bring jesus down is completely ironically and i mean this like not a play on words blinded by this hatred right jesus heals a man born blind physically but the real blind people are these people right 
completely distracting them, completely blinding them from the miracle of a healing of a man born blind. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, our pride in wanting to be correct blinds us from the miraculous work of God in everyday situations and lives. It's not enough to see someone come to faith. They have to understand the faith the way that you do. What follows is an investigation into the accuracy of the healing account of the once blind man. They get his testimony, then they inquire his parents. Some even try to deny that the man was blind at all. And then they conclude that this man was too much of a sinner to be given any credence in terms of his testimony. They scoff at his claims that Jesus must be a man of God if he could do something never before seen. They align themselves to Moses and claim that Jesus is not part of their tradition or lineage. And so a simple lesson from Jesus follows this dispute. The once blind man could now see physically. But even greater is that he could see who Jesus truly was. It's not that he could see the world that is extraordinary, but that he could see who Jesus was that was extraordinary. Because even those who could see with their eyes could not see that truth. That's why Jesus quotes Isaiah 6, 9 to 10 all the time, right? You may have eyes to see, ears to hear, but lest you cannot perceive or understand. Right? Now, whereas... Unlike the blind man, the Pharisees were blinded by the arrogance and pride that although they claimed to be able to see, they in fact, as Jesus says in the end of chapter 9, are the ones who are blind. You are the ones who are blind, he says. Right? The teaching lesson of chapter 9 can be summed up like this. Matthew chapter 15, verse 14 does it well. Quote, Leave them alone. They are blind guides of blind people. And if a person who is blind guides another who is blind, both will fall into a pit. This is why Paul is so uh, determined to weed out false teaching in the church. If you read the epistles, right? Uh, as, I've, I've, as I've taught many times before, there's only one uh, reason that Paul excommunicates, kicks people out of the body of Christ, so to speak. Kicks them out of the church, of the community of, of, of Christ followers. Why? False teaching. He's very harsh on false teaching. Just like Jesus. Jesus is harsh on false teaching. Why? Because it leads both the teacher and the student to fall into the pit. The Pharisees, you can imagine, are not impressed by this. And on the heels of this back and forth between them and Jesus, we are given here the parable of the Good Shepherd. So in light of all of this, this tension and this friction between the Pharisee crowd and Jesus, the rabbi, this new hotshot rabbi that's coming out of Galilee, here we find the parable of the Good Shepherd. Verses 1 to 2. Let's break it down verse by verse and understand this thoroughly. Verses 1 to 2. The backdrop of the entire parable in this chapter is the metaphor of a sheep pen. Right? This whole parable, the context, of the, the environment in which this parable exists is the metaphor of a sheep pen. A field, a pen, a fence, a shepherd, an under-shepherd, robbers and thieves. These are all things that people would have understand as Jesus was talking about. He didn't have to explain what a sheep pen was. Today, we might need that understanding. It is appropriate as the audience that he is speaking to, not only the Pharisees, but the crowd around him, would be quite familiar with first century shepherding. Why? Because they're all just basic low-class citizens, right? Doing the very basic tasks of trade. 
Many of Jesus' parables, if you're familiar with them, draw from first century Near Eastern trade skills such as farming, fishing, construction, or his own carpentry. Farming. So remember the parable of the, of the seeds. The farmer sows the seeds. Some fall on the ground. Some fall on the good soil. Some fall on the rocks. Some fall on the thorns. They would have been familiar with farming. What about the parable of uh, uh, in terms of uh, construction, remember like when Jesus talks in Matthew 7 at the end of the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, when he talks about building your house on sand, on rock, what's the difference? What happens when the storms and winds and all these things come, right? Or when Jesus is saying, um, when he's talking about ox and yokes, right? For my yoke is light, or my burden is light. Come to me, all who are weary. When he's talking about what a yoke is and all, he doesn't have to explain these things. They know what these things are. He uses what's around him and he uses these things as imagery and metaphors for the teaching that he wants to bring to them. And so here we see nothing different. The whole context is shepherding, a sheep pen. Jesus indicates that the one and only true shepherd of a flock enters solely through the one and only door. I want to emphasize these things. There's one and only, one and only, one true shepherd of a flock. And that one true shepherd enters the sheep pen through one door. That's really, that needs to be emphasized. And this is, of course, the sheep door, the sheep gate of the flock's pen. This is also the door that the sheep themselves will enter in and exit out into the pasture and back into the pen. First century shepherds would also hire and entrust what was called a door or gatekeeper to guard the gate of the pen. Today we call them under-shepherds. Now an under-shepherd in the modern context, if you take this metaphor, metaphor all the way to the 21st century today, the under-shepherd is the pastor. Right? Your pastor, your local pastor of your church um, is basically the under-shepherd. Right? They are not the true shepherd of the flock, right? They are the under-shepherd. They are entrusted. They're stewards of the flock. But the one true shepherd, of course, is and always will be Jesus Christ. Thieves and robbers would hence not enter, not enter through the door or the gate, the one door, the one gate, but by other means for the purpose of secrecy and with only malicious intent. Why? Because they're thieves and robbers. They're there to steal the flock. You can see where this entire metaphor is leading in terms of its lesson. The parable draws flashbacks to Ezekiel chapter 34, where the, where the prophet Ezekiel prophesies a warning against the false teachers of Israel that have led Israel astray. The imagery of that prophecy found in chapter 34 also is a flock and a shepherd. The language of shepherding is not foreign to anyone who is a frequent Bible reader. Or if you're common with, you know, if, you're, if you live in a Korean household, a Korean Christian household, you're probably familiar with all the Bible verses that are like, you know, painted across your house, right? And like framed on the walls. Or maybe on your refrigerator. Or if you have the Bible app, you know, like you have your daily Bible verses that come to you, right? The language of shepherding is not foreign to you. Why? We see it all throughout Scripture. What about Psalm 23, one of the most famous chapters in all of Scripture, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. As David himself wrote that, was once a shepherd himself. And he pens that masterpiece. Or what about the other Gospels, such as the famous Luke chapter 15, parable of the lost sheep? It's a powerful image. It's a proper one. 
that impeccably describes the gospel reality. One of the greatest things that I find uh, peculiar, interesting, and thoughtful, and really reflective for me is when I'm thinking of, because the shepherds at the time, we think of like shepherds as being like these very noble men who are taking care of these sheep. Shepherds were like basically the garbage men of their society. Shepherds were the lowest of the low. They were very like women and children's testimonies were not uh, credited during this time uh, in an open court. And neither were shepherds, specifically shepherds. Why? Because they were the lowest of the low class citizen. They were taking care of the dumbest animals and doing the most primitive of jobs. And so this is not some sort of beautiful imagery. Jesus is not drawing from some sort of noble thing, right? Remember David, when he's found as a young boy shepherding the flock, he's completely ignored. He's not even considered as a, as a candidate to be the king when Samuel asks for your sons. It's like, oh yeah, I had another son, but he's shepherd. He's a shepherd. <laughs> right, fine, you want to see him? Okay. And then he's the king. So we talk about shepherding, it's not as, as beautiful of an imagery as we think it to be today. Well, one of the most powerful things we find in scripture is when Jesus comes uh, and he incarnates into the world and he's in the manger. One of the first witnesses, one of the first people, the group of people that the angel goes to to proclaim the coming of the Messiah is a group of shepherds. No-name shepherds in the middle of a field. You have three wise men and a bunch of low-class citizen shepherds. A really weird image, right? You have these rich, noble Gentiles who come and and see Jesus as as magi. And then you have these low-class nobodies, not even named. How many of them were there? We don't know, but they're there. Praising and lifting up honor and glory for the Messiah who has come. Maybe you should remember that this Christmas. Verse 3, the purpose of the doorkeeper under shepherd, as they were called, was to tend to the gate, to protect the gate, and make sure only the true, the one and only true shepherd would enter and exit through that gate. Not only, you just call, call them bodyguards, okay? Not only did these people watch the gate, they helped and assisted the shepherd in caring for the flock, specifically by taking the night watch and protecting them from harm, from robbers and thieves. Shepherds both now and back then in the Near Eastern regions had their own unique call for the sheep. It is this call or voice that the sheep would learn to recognize and they would only follow their shepherd by being able to distinguish them. But Jesus tells us here that his sheep will not only know the shepherd's voice, but that the shepherd would know each sheep by name. By name. This is to say that each and every sheep would be uniquely known by the shepherd, specifically and distinguishably. He not only calls the flock, but every member of that flock by their own unique name. So as much the flock knows the shepherd's voice. So as much as we know God's voice, God knows your voice. (coughs) Is what I'm trying to get across here. As much as you know the shepherd, the shepherd knows you. His sheep. We can't forget that. Verses 4 to 5. The typical Western style of shepherding that we are familiar with is the usage of sheepdogs. If you've ever watched like any kind of modern sh- like uh, shepherding, they'll use sheepdogs and, they'll sh- and, the, and the dogs will circle around the sheep and sort of uh, make, sure, make sure that they're moving together as a, as a flock, right? And the purpose of the sheepdogs 
is to, out of fear, coerce and control the sheep to move a certain way as the shepherd desires. The sheep are driven by the shepherd. But here, we don't see that. The image is quite contrasting. Whereas that's the Western style of shepherding, the Near Eastern style of shepherding omitted the sheepdog. It was completely reliant on the sheep's ability to distinguish the voice of the shepherd and they would mindlessly, in a sense, or I guess you could say in some sense mindfully, follow that one voice, ignoring the rest. This is so peculiar. If you go today even into the Near Eastern regions where there's old school shepherding, you will find you can mix hundreds of sheep together from, let's say, five different flocks. And if you have all five shepherds calling out to their sheep, the sheep will separate from the others and go to their shepherd. It's a powerful image. The sheep are driven by the shepherd. Eastern style shepherding involved the following of the shepherd by the sheep, not by force, but by a leading voice. The idea is to teach, to compel the sheep to follow faithfully. Not necessarily to just mindlessly control their movements. John MacArthur notes on these verses, in verses 4 to 5, that this is a remarkable picture, quote, remarkable picture of the master-disciple relationship as we see in the New Testament. This conjures to mind the Apostle Paul's words, imitate me as I imitate Christ. The Christian model of leadership and discipleship hence can be summed up by that idea of imitation of conduct. To follow Christ then is to become Christ-like. See, a lot of people equate these things. To follow Christ is to be in heaven. No. That's a truly wonderful benefit of the Christian life. But to follow Christ is not to just look ahead at the destination of our eternal souls, but instead to look at the present reality and realize my pursuit, my following of Christ is to be like Him. That means a shift in conduct, in thought, in speech, in everything. Verse 6, just as Jesus said in chapter 9, that those who claim to be able to see are in fact blind. They prove his words to be substantive, substantive in that they cannot understand the parable that is given to them. There is an air of cryptic mystery to his words that they cannot perceive. Verses 7 to 10. There are seven famous I am statements in John's gospel. They are as follows, listed in order. Bread of life, light of the world. The door, the good shepherd. The resurrection and the life. The way, the truth and the life. That's one. And then the true vine. The third is found here, the door, in verse 7. There is a shift in the metaphor as Jesus explains it here in verses uh, as, as Jesus continues to explain this metaphor here in verses 7 to 10. Now in verses 1 to 5, it's evident that he, Jesus, is the shepherd and the doorkeeper are faithful leaders. It could be the apostles, it could be disciples, it could be ministers and future pastors. And the sheep being the nation of Israel, God's people. But here he becomes the door through which the shepherd enters and through which the sheep are granted access to the shepherd. The metaphor slightly shifts here. The sheep were initially being led out of the pen by the shepherd's voice. 
Um, but here, Jesus is the means by which a sheep enters the fold. Later, Jesus will make the sixth I am statement, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. This is in line with his teaching ministry in John's Gospel, that he is the sole means to salvation through which any who long to be saved must enter through. Jesus reiterates in verse 9 that he is the door and the only door at that through which entrance to salvation is rewarded. It is to say that he is the exclusive means by which any sheep will find, will find pasture. All other so-called means to salvation are fakes. As mentioned in verse 10, a thief who comes to take life, whereas he alone can offer abundant life, eternal life to those who enter through him. No one else can. Remember, John has already written this in John 3.16, famously. Who's that whosoever believes in him shall have eternal life. And you can continue reading there. Verse 17, 18, and 19 make it clear. It is through the means of faith in Christ alone that one is granted salvation. It has, there is no other way. Now you're going to ask me, well, what about before Jesus came? What about before Jesus incarnated? What about all those other people? As much as we are looking back at a Christ that you, have, you and I have never interacted with, that you and I have never spoken with, that we haven't seen or, 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 or touched physically, that Messiah, that Jesus who incarnated over 2,000 years ago, we have faith in a Christ who has come. People before Christ were doing the same thing, believing in a Messiah and a Christ who is to come, nameless and faceless to them, and also without any sort of historical event for them to mark, but they know of a coming Christ. So where our faith is placed in a Christ who has come, people pre-Christ are looking at a Christ to come. So what does it mean? All of history divides on the cross. Either you put your faith in a Christ who will come and be saved, or you put your faith in a Christ who has come and will be saved. And not only that, we are living in a very peculiar and unique moment in time where not only has Christ come, He will come again. So we can resonate with the people who were looking towards the Messiah to come because we are also looking ahead to a future event in which Christ will come again. All of that to say simply this, faith in Christ alone is the means to salvation, period. He is the door. The one and only door. In the famous Sermon on the Mount, he also says that there's a narrow gate and a wide gate, a narrow path and a wide path. Very few will walk the narrow. Salvation, hence, is conditional on faith in Christ, and so the destination of our eternal future is dependent totally on our entrance through the means of Christ. This is why the Apostle Paul teaches the concept of union with Christ. In Greek, he writes it like this, en Christos, in Christ. It's such a key statement in the epistles of Paul. And he teaches it as such an important and critical and crucial understanding for every believer. You are saved by your union with Christ. Your union with Him in His death your union with Him in His resurrection, and ultimately, your union with Him in our holy matrimony when the bride, the church, finally is forever 
bonded to our bridegroom, the Christ. Eternal life can and, can and is only found in Christ. The word abundant life is throws off a lot of people. I've, I've, I've watched a lot of prosperity preachers and they use this verse a lot, right? I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I don't blame them completely because the initial Latin translators were pretty bad at translating the text. Um, and so this is very, e it's very easy. I can see why. Uh, it's very tempting to take this verse out of context. Now, don't take my words for it. Let's look at James Boyce, a uh, famous theologian. He writes on this word, the Greek word for abundance, perisos, has a mathematical meaning and generally denotes a surplus. The abundant life is above all the contended life, in which our contentment is based upon the fact that God is equal to every emergency and is able to supply all our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Charles Spurgeon also writes on this, Life is a matter of degrees. Some have life, but it flickers like a dying candle and is indistinct as the fire and the smoking flax. Others are full of life and are bright and vehement, but it's not about being rich and it's not about being comfortable and it's not about avoiding pain and suffering in life. It's all about finding contentment in Christ alone and finding our joy in His riches and in His glory. Now, if that's not evidence enough for you, look at the life of Christ. Where do you see an abundance of riches in the Son of God? Where do you see an abundance of riches and abundance of comfort in the life of the apostles, the direct called men? Following Christ's ascension, where do you see that? When you look at 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th century Christians, where do you see richness and abundance as the predominant feature of the most faithful men and women of Christian history? Where do you see this? You only see it today. You only see it in the Roman Catholic Church and you only see it in today's prosperity preaching. We don't find any of this in church history. We don't applaud this. If anything, Scripture warns us of the dangers of monetary temptation, of worldly richness. Verse 11, the fourth I am statement. Is it the fourth? Sixth, seventh, fourth, yeah. The fourth I am statement is, I am the good shepherd. Not only is he the means into the fold of God, he is also the shepherd himself. But not just any shepherd, Jesus is the good shepherd. It's distinct from just shepherd. This suggests to us the presence of bad shepherding or poor shepherding or just shepherding, where one leads astray. The good shepherd leads the flock to safety and life. The word good here is one that incorporates the idea of noble character, and one that looks after the good of those he's caring for. The good shepherd is so good, in fact, that he will lay down his own life for his sheep. Think about it. Think about this for a moment. Sheep are animals. They are dumb, dirty, disposable, short-living creatures, just temporary in their existence. No sheep on earth 
equates to the value of your life as a human being. Yet this shepherd will lay down his own life for sheep. Think about that for a moment. Think about any animal you would die for. There's not an animal on this planet I would die for. And I know, okay, pet lovers and animal lovers out there, you're probably like raging at me right now. But seriously, if your mom is hanging on the cliff and your dog is hanging on the cliff, who are you gonna save? Please don't save the dog. Please, let's use sanity for a moment. There's, I'm not saying you can't love animals. Certainly this shepherd loves the sheep. But we need to think about if we're being equated to the sheep, we are just insignificant to this Christ, this good shepherd. And yet he is so good, for the sake of sheep, he would lay down his life. Think about that for a moment. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary attitude for a shepherd to have. The good shepherd is so good that he lays down his life for us. This is, of course, a foreshadow and a teaching of Christ's substitutionary atonement on the cross that will come in the Gospel of John for the sake of his sheep. Charles Spurgeon writes again, In the Latin tongue, the word for money is akin to the word sheep. Because uh, so many of the first Romans, wool was their wealth, and their fortunes lay in their flocks. The Lord Jesus is our shepherd. We are his wealth. He is giving his life still. The life that is in the man Christ Jesus, he is always giving for us. It is for us he lives, and because he lives, we live also. He lives to plead for us. He lives to represent us in heaven. He lives to rule providence for us. Verses 12 to 15. The hired hand who were entrusted to guard the pen and the flock have failed in their duties. Because instead of looking after the good of the flock, they look after their own good. Their care is for themselves. Here's another warning for us against false teachers. There is no sacrificial love because when harm comes, they will default to acting selfishly. This contrasts Jesus, the good shepherd, who came by his own words to serve and not to be served. Verse 16. The other sheep here refers to future believers, namely Gentiles, who are not yet part of, it writes, the fold but they will be welcomed in. The statement here is a fact. It's written in the present tense as if it has already happened. The statement is made with authority. There will be one flock, one shepherd for all. I am reminded again of Paul's teaching in Galatians 3 that, that, that there is neither Jew nor Greek for we are all one in Christ Jesus. But remember, it's not... Okay, this is, this is where Christian unity gets distorted. People look to verses like this and they distort the language of the text and it's not their fault. Let me, let me quote one thing. Jerome, who was one of the initial first Bible translators of the uh, original Greek into the Latin, the vernacular of his time, the early Christian Bible translator Jerome, one commentator writes, when translating his influential Latin Vulgate, version mistakenly translated one fold. So as we read it, one fold instead of one flock. So instead of writing, we are found one flock, one shepherd, he wrote one fold, one shepherd, to be consistent with the other words. It was a mistake. And his Latin Vulgate reading is the erroneous foundation for a doctrine of Roman Catholic exclusiveness. To say that we are to be unified as a flock. 
So unity in modern minds looks like in ignorance of the distinctive natures and qualities that we are given by God. But that's not actually what's being told of us here. We're not being told we will become one fold. We're being told we will become one flock. They will be brought into the fold, right? Or that's initially there, but they will not become one fold. In other words, we're not becoming Jews. We're not becoming Israelites. We will all come with our distinctive characters and unique qualities and become one flock. But what is the unifying feature of that flock? It's the obedience and the following of the one shepherd. That is what makes us one flock. That is what makes us the body of Christ. When the arm comes in, it doesn't become the leg. When the hand comes in, it doesn't become the nose. We all come in with our unique qualities. We come with our, with our Asian-ness, our Korean-ness, our Canadian-ness, our American-ness. All of these things come in and in their sinful and their distasteful and tainted nature and that quality, they're all laid down at the feet of the shepherd and our unity is found in, our, in the blood of Christ. It's not found in our all of a sudden, like all of us becoming the same person. It's not found in that. That's why we argue and bicker and just tweet at each other all these stupid things. And we get angry over this stuff. Culture, human culture, distracts us from the one shepherd. This is why I really like one thing, one thing Piper taught about like 20 years ago. Reverend John Piper, he was at a, he was at a conference and one of the things he taught at this conference uh, on a panel discussion, they were talking about how do we interact with um, people who are into open theism or liberal theology, who are you know, falling into these traps um, and are arguing and you know, debating with with the reformed crowd. How do, we, how do we interact with these people, right? And I've heard a lot of people on the other end of the reformed crowd just say, hey, you know what, you guys are very judgmental, you guys are very harsh, you guys are mean, you guys are, you know, yeah, you guys are really intelligent and rhetorical, but it, it's just mean, <laughs> right? So one of the things Piper says here, this is about like 20, 30 years ago, I think he wrote, he, or maybe, maybe less. Anyways, he says on this panel discussion, this interesting thing, he says, we, we need to come at people with rhetoric, with intelligence, with thoughtfulness, with mindfulness, and we need to come with good debate and arguments, but we also need to come to the table with tears. Because what Jesus shows us is not only rhetoric and the power and the intelligence to override his competition on the level of argumentation, but he also comes to the table grieving for the people who are lost. And what's missing in the reform crowd sometimes is the grieving over the lost. We're so concerned with being right and proving others wrong that we come across with no grief, no compassion, and no sorrow. So as much as we need to unhinge the rhetoric of the world, we must also open hearts with our tears. I really appreciated that. 
And one thing he says there in that panel discussion to conclude that really challenged me was he says, I haven't figured out how to do that yet. Maybe this is a pursuit we need to have. Because as much as Christ unhinges the incorrect teachings of the world, I think he certainly comes to the table with tears. One commentator writes, nothing is said of unity of organization. There may be various folds, though one flock. Another commentator writes, the unity comes from the fact not that all the sheep are forced into one fold, but that they all hear, answer, and obey one shepherd. It is not ecclesiastical unity. It's not becoming all, like, it's not about all becoming Presbyterian. It's not all about all of us becoming Baptists, all of us becoming whatever denomination that we've named. It is, he says, a unity of loyalty to Jesus Christ. Isn't that humbling? I think it's humbling. Verses 17 to 18, the laying down of his own life and the taking up of his life from the grave are all the will of the Father entrusted with authority to the Son to execute and the Son does all of this in obedience to that shared will with his Father so that you and I may have life through faith in him. But ultimately, it is for the glory of God in all things. Next week, we're going to be looking at the rising of Lazarus from the grave or the raising of Lazarus from the grave and uh, we'll be talking about what that means. For the glory of God. The death of Christ is not the end, but rather the means through which we are given the resurrection of Christ. The death of our sins is not the end, but rather the new life we live in our union with Him. Our death in bodily form will not be our end, but rather the means through which we will be glorified and be with Him forever. Jesus' sixth I am statement will be that He is the resurrection and the life. And so as we die to our sins in His death on the cross, we live our new life in Him as he resurrects from the grave. His resurrection triggered the greatest seismic shift in human history since, since the fall. As the outpouring of the Spirit came, it ignited the birth of the church and the global body of Christ forever as we know it today. Spurgeon writes, One last time, when any ordinary man dies, he only pays the debt of nature. If he were even to die for his friend, he would simply pay a little earlier that debt which he must pay ultimately. But the Christ was immortal, and he needed not to die, except that he had put himself under the covenant bonds to suffer for his sheep. His resurrection, brothers and sisters, demonstrates to us once and for all his unique bond and union in his nature with the Father and Spirit, the relationship and union we call God, the Trinity. And finally, in verses 19 to 21, a division occurs. And here's where I find the most comfort and solace. After all of that, Jesus says, yeah, some, they got it. And some are questioning it. And some will come to believe. <laughs> That's the nature of truth. That's how simple we are. So it ends the way that chapter 9 ended. The blind are blind, and the ones who can see can see. They bicker and they argue. They hear this and they yet the Jews still debate among themselves. And I find it so hilarious. They're still blind. Some believed he was demon-possessed even. Some thought he was insane. And others can sense, no, these are not the words of a demon. These are not the words of an insane man. I have no idea what this is, but definitely not those things. So you're going to have a what? A spectrum of people. Here's my conclusion. Just a couple sentences. There will always exist a great chasm in the thought of man, thought of mankind, 
in the truth of Christ. Truth of Christ is here, thought of man here, and there's this great chasm, right? So we think we got all figured out. We haven't got nothing figured out. We can't even figure out this coronavirus stuff. You think we can figure out the truth and the realities of the universe? No way, okay? Like Sir Isaac Newton, when we wrote all the laws of thermodynamics and physics, we thought these are like laws that can never change. Well, you know what we figured out? They're not laws. Their gravitational laws are completely dependent on the pole and, the, and, the, and are always shifting because the universe is expanding by 2% every freaking like year. There's stars out there that we see in the sky that don't even exist anymore because light travels at a certain speed. This is not even like, we're not even like touching the surface of reality. We can't explain nothing. We can only pretend like we can explain something. Thought of man and the truth of Christ, there's a great chasm. There's a spectrum, hence, that will always exist in human opinion and thought on who Jesus is. There will always exist that spectrum. And whether his words are credible. Let not the thoughts of man, brothers and sisters, sway you away from Christ. Let not the thoughts of men be our reason for following Christ. But rather, I urge you, examine Christ yourself and pray that you may be found in the fold of Christ, in the flock of Christ, as one flock with one shepherd. Let's pray. Let's reflect on the word of God today.